Pete Sinclair, born 1935, dropped out of college to climb and with three friends pioneered a dangerous route up Mount McKinley's southwest rib in 1959. He later became a climbing ranger at Grand Teton National Park. He also married and earned a degree. Sinclair knew that one day there would be a call for a rescue on the Grand Teton's north face and that it would be the most difficult rescue of his career. From We Aspired, The Last Innocent Americans, by Pete Sinclair. Late in the 1967 season, J.J. Cook, Cookie, invited us on a moonlight float trip down the Snake River. We were a diverse group that had been drawn to the valley under the Tetons. Cookie was a fly fisherman and river guide, whose daughter married the Maharaja of Sikkim, there was my wife, Connie, a native of Jackson, whose mother kept the stage station on Teton Pass. Her father had driven the freight wagons from the train over the pass into the valley. Professor Crabtree of the Stevens Institute in Hoboken, who was originally from Kansas, provided commentary. Zadie, Jim Wiedekoper's almost grown-up daughter, was there too. Her dad was a rancher who had been a peer of one of the Kennedys at Harvard. Also traveling with us was a bottle of Hudson's Bay rum. Downriver, Cookie got too close to the bank. Man the scuppers, we're going ashore, yelled Crabtree. I chuckled about that. Then I thought of it again, and chuckled and giggled some more. Everybody else had stopped chuckling some time earlier. Everybody else had stopped nipping on the rum some time earlier, too. Then I got maudlin. Tiwanot. Owen and the Grand, called the Cathedral Group, viewed from the northeast, were faintly backlit from the sun down over the horizon. I was in the grip of a complicated mood. I knew the mountains and didn't, loved them and feared them, felt gratitude and fulfillment and loss and regret. I started talking to the mountains loudly with a drunk's postured seriousness. The vision of how it was going to be between me and the world was beginning to cloud over, leaving me with an unfocused sense of grievance. So I did the natural thing. I said something mean to my wife. I told her that I loved the mountains as much as I loved her, and if it weren't for the fact that she was so beautiful, I'd leave her in a minute and go off into the mountains. I'd had the mood to just up and head for the hills twice before, while standing on the deck of the USS Albany off the Azores, as a midshipman in the Navy, and when looking at some hills while on an artillery maneuver at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. The mood seemed to be compounded of mountains, water, and a sense of doing the wrong thing. Connie wasn't fooled by the beautiful part. I was being a bastard, and there wasn't much she could do. What can you say to a drunk in a rubber raft? I noticed that my companions regarded me as a drunk who bordered on being unfunny. I determined to show them that I was serious about staying in the mountains. We stopped on a sandbar, and I announced that I was going to spend the night there, my last night alone with the mountains, or something such. To prove to my companions that I could take care of myself, I gathered wood for a fire. I wasn't particular about what I gathered. Damp seemed as good as dry. And damp was handier, since to get dry wood, I'd have to swim for it. 
I carefully laid the fire and struck match after match after match. When the matches were gone, I allowed myself to be talked into getting back into the raft, feeling shrewd because I knew I wasn't nearly as drunk as they thought I was. When we arrived at the landing, I proved how sober I was by refusing to abandon ship. I did finally agree to get out long enough so they could load the raft on top of the car and me into the raft. It was after one o'clock when we got back to the cabin. Ralph Tingey was there, and I explained to him about how I wouldn't abandon the raft, and he explained to me about how there was a party calling for help on the north face of the Grand, and suddenly I wasn't so drunk anymore. I've often wondered what my mates were thinking at that moment. I don't mean about going on a rescue with a drunk. I mean about going up on the north face for a rescue. To the degree I was able to think, my thoughts wandered between disbelief and relief. Ever since I had been a ranger, the image of a north face rescue had been there. It obviously had to happen someday, we said. Once, a climb only the most experienced were audacious enough to undertake, the North Face was by the mid-sixties being done by aspiring young climbers in the third year of their apprenticeship in mountaineering. It had become the test which established mastery over the old mountaineering skills. Inevitably, we felt someone would take the test before they were fully prepared, out of eagerness to move into the current realms of glory blank wall climbing, gymnastic climbing, and, already on the horizon, vertical ice climbing. Yvon Chouinard, among others, warned ambitious young climbers that the relative absence of technically difficult pitches is itself one of the dangers of the North Face. Bad weather or a minor injury would create a horror show survivable only by those with seasoning that cannot be acquired in three years it would have been presumptuous for a youngster, no matter how technically gifted, to have accused Chouinard of being a nervous Nelly. So his admonitions helped. Nevertheless, warnings inspire as well as caution. We had the North Face in mind as one place where an injury or death would certainly happen. After eight years, we had lost all confidence in our ability to predict who would not get into trouble, but we had lots of faith in the force of numbers. Nothing good resulted from more people. Given the number of people coming to the mountains, sooner or later everything imaginable would happen. In the years since I had moved into the ranger station, and especially since Dunbar Susong had become the assistant district ranger, we had improved our equipment. We had acquired, for example, an Austrian cable rescue rig like those used on Eiger North Face rescues. More important, we had the team. Never before could we have mustered a team like that of 1967. In the years of working out techniques, gathering material, and building up manpower, our argument had been, what if there is a North Face rescue? The seven of us who would go up on the rescue had all climbed the North Face. It was as if the mountain had kindly waited. It would have to wait a bit longer. There was nothing I could do at the moment. And fortunately, for the good name of the Park Service, and of my children, not much anybody could do. I had to get some sleep and sober up. I gave just a fleeting mental grin at myself for the recent sentimentality about my beloved mountains. In eight years on the rescue team, I had never let my guard so far down. That wasn't by any means the first night I had partied, 
but it was the only time I ever allowed myself to forget that within the hour I might be on my way up on a rescue. Again, it was as if the mountain had been waiting. I told Ralph that we'd check it out with the spotting scope in the morning and went to bed. Whether that decision was made because instinctively I knew it was the right one, or merely because I was so hopelessly befuddled that it was the only thing I could do, is one of the things I'm fated never to know. Had I been sober, I might have reasoned that we could commit ourselves to a full-scale operation or send out a two-man scouting party. The only standard procedure in competent rescue work is where you store your gear, but usually a report of a party in trouble that is based on indirect evidence, such as a report of a shout heard from a cliff or a party overdue, merits only the sending out of a scouting party. As it happened, had we done that, there would not have been any net loss of time, but we might have burned out two of our strongest climbers, Rick Reese and either Ted Wilson or Ralph. But no one argued that we send out scouts first. The mood of this one was different. Ralph had given me, in the most objective terms, the information he had acquired and sorted during the previous three hours, including lights he had spotted at the place the party was reported to be, and he was careful to point out that there was nothing conclusive. Yet it was obvious that he was convinced. The spotting scope could confirm his assessment, but it could not deny it. There would be no risking losing a day while we accustomed ourselves to the sensation that this was it, as had happened on the Appy rescue. We would go whether we picked them out in the spotting scope or not. We'd go together, and we'd ask for a helicopter as soon as I sobered up. Ralph, still shaking from two hours of sitting in the mist-chilled meadow, woke me up with the news that he'd seen the party. We started organizing. He took me out to the scope. The moment I looked into the scope, I realized what a difficult task I had given him. It had taken him thirty minutes to locate them. The scope was at the limit of its capability. The slightest movement, a passing breeze or car, distorted the field of vision. His precise memory of the route had allowed him to methodically search it, not merely pitch by pitch, but almost move by move. To sweep that scope fifty feet at a time would have been precise work. Ralph had had to move its field of vision no more than fifteen feet at a time. After he spotted them, he watched for an hour. There was no doubt, only one of the figures was moving. They'd be on that ledge until we moved them off it. We assumed that it was the girl who was hurt. She weighed 120 pounds, as against the man's weight of 170. Did we have enough evidence to justify chartering a helicopter? There was a note of pleading in my voice as I asked Doug for one. I'm afraid of helicopters. When in one, I cannot shake the impression that I am being wafted into the air thousands of feet over very unyielding metamorphic rock by a dragonfly with a thyroid problem. But given a choice between a few minutes of fear and five thousand feet of heavy carrying, I'd take the fear. If I hadn't, I would have been overruled by the rest of the team anyway. I like a helicopter pilot who doesn't waste time trying to reassure his nervous passengers. With the exchange of a few brief sentences, ours saw that we understood the problem. Even a helicopter is not independent of the winds and what the various shapes of the mountains can do to them. 
Once he understood that we didn't expect him to take off and make a beeline for the ledge upon which were our clients, our pilot was interested in hearing what we knew of the terrain and air currents in the vicinity of the cathedral group. The Grand and Owen are on a north-south line, with the Grand to the south. Owen and Tiwanot are on an east-west line, with Tiwanot to the east. In the middle of this triangle of summits is a glacier, Teton Glacier. The north face falls directly to this glacier. Outside this triangle is a series of canyons. To the east, of course, is Jackson's Hole. Our cabins were on the east side of the meadow at the base of Tiwanot. North of Tiwanot and Owen is Cascade Canyon. West of Owen and the Grand, behind them from our perspective at our cabins, is the south fork of Cascade Canyon, with a basin called Dartmouth Basin at the head of it. South of the Grand is Garnet Canyon. The call between Garnet Canyon and Dartmouth Basin is called the Lower Saddle. The most popular routes up the Grand start from this 12,000-foot saddle that is big enough so that a hundred people could all find level places to bivouac. The Exum Guide Service Hut is on this saddle, as is a roughed-out heliport. To fly directly up the glacier would be equivalent to paddling a canoe up a rapid. Our pilot chose to approach from the back. He picked his way up Cascade Canyon and then turned south up the South Fork, feeling out the terrain and looking for updrafts which would lift us to our maximum safe altitude of 13,000 feet. It was like putting in a kayak upstream of a rapids. Mount Owen and the Grand are almost joined by a huge buttress with the descriptive title The Grandstand. The Grandstand is the back wall of the Teton Glacier as viewed from the valley. It was a possible route, not a preferred one. We merely glanced at it, intent on finding and really seeing what was still no more substantial than a report of shouts in the mountains and two watery shadows wavering in the lens of the spotting scope. The same imagination, which for years had me falling flailing off the north face of the Grand in my dreams, had me, in the few seconds between the time we thought we should spot them and when we did spot them, hoping that we hadn't really seen anything, that nobody had fallen off the Grand, and that I was just having a hangover. I was having a hangover, all right, but there were also two people on a ledge. The first thing that we noticed was that it was the man who was down. The girl was trying to jump up and down for joy, but was considerably inhibited by the 2,000 feet of exposure to the glacier below the ledge on which she was leaping about. With me in the helicopter was Rick Reese, tacitly acknowledged by all of us as the strongest climber on the rescue team. I was to assess the condition of the party and try to talk to them through a battery-powered bullhorn, part of our riot control equipment. Rick was to look over the route. The implacable steepness of the north face is relieved by four prominent ledges, called the first, second, third, and fourth ledges, as you ascend the face. Also, as you ascend, the ledges become shorter and narrower and slope fairly steeply eastward toward the valley and also northward toward the glacier. So, while these ledges are a break in the steepness of the face, they are not the sort of place where you'd want to let your attention wander. Our two victims were at the lower end of the second ledge, altitude 12,800. This meant that they would be relatively easy to get to. The second ledge connects to another ledge that crosses the west face and ends at the upper saddle, altitude 13,000. 
The upper saddle is on the Owen-Spaulding route, the regular route between the summit and the lower saddle. Over the years, we had carried maybe a ton of wounded humanity off the mountain via this route. It was tedious, not without problems, but reasonable and familiar. What I mostly thought about that way off was that it involved murderously backbreaking work, because it was seldom steep enough or on the fall line enough to permit a straightforward lowering. If we took that route, we'd be bearing the weight of the victim mainly on our arms and backs. Our other options were on very unfamiliar terrain. We had long ago formulated a plan to be used in the event of a North Face rescue. If the party were on the first ledge or below, we would lower. If they were above the second ledge, depending upon how high they were, we would either raise the litter toward the summit until we could go down the regular route, or lower it to the top of the second ledge and traverse around the connecting ledge to the regular route. We had covered all the eventualities except the one which we now faced. Their position on the lower third of the second ledge was equally remote from the connecting ledge and the first ledge. In terms of our planning the route of evacuation, our victims were in no man's land. Raising and traversing techniques are rarely used in rescue work. When they are, as on an Iger rescue, it's apt to be world news. Raising requires some device for gaining mechanical advantage and is practically impossible except on vertical or near-vertical rock where the litter can be held away from the face by one or two men. An overhang is ideal. Traversing, especially an ascending traverse, requires an almost unbelievable amount of physical energy. The angle doesn't have to ease from the vertical much before the litter bearers begin to feel that they both are lifting against gravity and are in a tug-of-war against the raising device, which feels as if it is trying to pitch them forward on their faces, and are at the same time keeping their balance sideways. It's like trying to both lift and drag a heavy rock while standing sideways on a steep slope. Although raising and traversing are not to be considered in usual circumstances, we were hoping that one or the other of these would be possible. Our sensible reason for so hoping was that we didn't want to enter ourselves and the litter into the hail of rocks whistling, spinning, and cascading more or less constantly down the face. Gravity was normally our ally. In lowering, we cashed in on the potential energy the victim had stored in climbing to the site of the accident. But on this face, gravity would be firing rocks at us. I think there was also a less sensible reason for hoping we could raise or traverse. We hadn't done much of it. Maybe it was an opportunity to outwit nature, to cheat a little. Maybe we wouldn't have to be competent, disciplined, hardworking, and brave. Just clever. Rick was not encouraged. It was a long way from where they were to the top of the second ledge. It was also a very long way down to the glacier. I had no more reason for cheer based on what I could perceive. I could not make them hear me above the roar of the helicopter, and so was unable to determine the exact nature and extent of his injuries. I hoped the victim could be loaded into a one-man carrying seat and be carried off at least the worst of it on the back of a rescuer, Rick to be precise. The man merely raised one arm, slower and more weakly than I wished and let it drop. His back didn't appear to be injured, so we would take along the carrying seat. 
If he could stand the jostling, the rescue would be greatly simplified. I wished that his wave had been more enthusiastic. As soon as we realized that we weren't going to find out anything more perched there in midair, we told the pilot that it would be fine with us if he got the hell out of there. He had not been having an easy time with the down, up, and cross drafts. I had been trying not to picture the consequences of a falling rock taking a bad bounce off the face and nicking a rotor blade, a possibility which the pilot most likely did not suspect. I did not distract him by mentioning it. As we soared past the north ridge and down across the west face, Rick and I turned our attention to the questions of logistics. What quantity of what type of gear would we have to get to the ledge by what means? Later, the problems would become cumulatively technical, physiological, and, after a certain point in time, technical difficulty or terror, psychological. The point of logistics is to anticipate these problems. Get it right technically, and the physiological and psychological problems are less likely to accumulate. It would be nice to have to take only the carrying seat. It would be a disaster if we took only the carrying seat and had to have the litter. This sort of uncertainty fixed the terms under which the mountain would meet us for the next two and a half days. We'd never see clearly beyond the...